Thank you. Dennis walked over to me just a few minutes ago before he walked off the platform and said, Boy, the music is great. He said, We could just pronounce the benediction and go home. I know he was teasing. Or at least I took it that way. But thank you. Mark Twain said, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. The problem with a good example is that they inspire us, but they do not enable us. Now, Jesus is both our example, but he also enables us. For instance, the Bible teaches us that we are to be submissive to God, and we know the challenge of doing so, and Jesus is our example. The Scripture says in Philippians 2.8, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Scripture says that Jesus humbled Himself. Therefore, He is our example concerning humility. He is also our example concerning obedience. The Bible says that we are to be obedient to God. And the Scripture says that Jesus was obedient. Even though he was a member of the Godhead equal, the Scripture says that as the Son, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the role of the Father. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed as he faced the cross, saying, Father, if there is some way for this cup to pass from me, then let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus is our example, but he also enables us. Ladies and gentlemen, he never asks us to do something that he does not enable us to do. He never puts us in a situation that he is not with us and is there in power to enable us. As we continue our study through the book of Philippians, we come to Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12, and the message is in His image. So look with me there, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, Paul begins in these verses by telling us about our basic purpose as a Christian. What is God doing in our lives? 
And the scripture tells us that God is conforming us to the image of Jesus. It is his purpose for you as a believer that you might become like Jesus. Now, the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, and you are especially familiar with verse number 28. Let me read it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, how many times have you relied on that verse? But now look at verse number 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So what the Scripture is telling us in those two verses is that God uses the things that happen in your life to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, which is his purpose. So all those things that happen in your life, good or bad... The Bible says that God wants to use those that you might become like Jesus because that is his purpose for your life. And the scripture says that you have been predestined as a believer to become conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, that's what God is doing in your life. He is working in your life that you might become like Christ. Now, look at verse number 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that has led to some confusion when he said, work out your salvation. Does that mean then that I am saved by the works I do? Does that mean that I become right with God by some something that I do in life? No. No, that is not at all what he is saying because this text is not dealing with conversion. So within the context of these verses, Paul is not speaking about conversion. Now let me remind you there are three parts to salvation. There is justification. That is when I am converted. At that point I am declared just before God. So that is justification. The second part of salvation is sanctification. So when I am justified, the event then is that I am placed within the body of Christ. And the process then begins. God begins now working in my life, convicting me of sin, that sin might be put out of my life. And so I am in the process now of becoming like Jesus. And the third part of salvation is glorification. That is when I go to heaven to be with the Lord and then I am like Jesus. So he is not here speaking about justification, he is speaking about sanctification. Because he was writing to believers in chapter 1, verse number 1, he begins, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, too, and this is to whom he is writing, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So he was writing to those who were already justified. The Bible tells us repeatedly that we are not saved by our works, but it is God's work that brings about salvation. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. So when he says, work out your salvation, he said, work out, not work for. Work out is a Greek verb, which means to bring to completion. So the point is, we have been justified. We have salvation now if we put our faith in Christ. So we have salvation. Now then we are working to bring it to completion. For instance, and let me give you a couple of illustrations here. You work out your bodies. You go over to the Family Life Center or the Y or wherever it is to work out your body. But when you go over there, you already have a body. So you're working out the body that you have already. The word that is used here was used by farmers to speak about a farmer working out his field. He had the field, but now then he is working out his field. A couple of things about this work out your salvation that suggests growth. In other words, when I am justified, when I become a believer, it is expected now that I work out my salvation. It is expected that I begin to mature in the faith. There are some people who come forward during the invitation, shake someone's hand. They tell them to sit down, fill out a card. They think that's a great commission and they never do anything else. No, that's not it. We are to be maturing. We are to be growing in our relationship to Christ. So it suggests maturity or growth. It also suggests individual responsibility. Did you know he said that work out what? Your salvation. Your salvation. In other words, you're not supposed to be an imitator of someone else. You are supposed to be working out your salvation. When the Lord first called me to preach, I, like a lot of other preachers, thought I was supposed to be Billy Graham. And so I would preach and, and you know, I would fake a, a southern accent, which is hard when you've got a Texas twang. But I'd try to talk, you know, like a southerner because that's what Billy did. And then I'd give the invitation and tell the people, you come, give your heart to the Lord. The buses will wait. There weren't 40 people there, but, you know, you... you and then I began to understand that God never called me to be Billy Graham. He already had one, and that was, that was sufficient. He gives us a command, work out your salvation. You are to be growing in Christ, and it is to be your salvation. Then he makes a contrast here of attitude in verse number 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, he is contrasting here the believer with the unbeliever. So he says, now, there is a difference in the attitude of a believer and an unbeliever. Albert Barnes says, in a quiet, peaceful, inoffensive manner, let there be no brawls, strives, or contentions. In other words, the believer is not to be a grumbler. And you recall that grumbling was characteristic of the, of the freed Jews as they went through the wilderness. They complained all the time. They, they grumbled all the time. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, using them as an example, Nor let us act immorally, nor let us try the Lord, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now, you remember the story. They were freed from Egyptian bondage. They are in the wilderness, and they grumble all the time they are there. They grumble about the food. They grumble about no water. They grumble about Moses. They grumble all the time. So Paul says that they were destroyed as a result of that. Why? Because we are not to be grumblers. And yet you and I know Christian people who grumble. Now, nobody here today, but there are some people you've come across who grumble. I've wanted to use this story, and this is as good a place as any to work it in. Someone sent to me, and there was an old couple living way out in the country. And the old man was a grumbler. I mean, he complained and griped, and he would yell, and he was abusive to his wife. He would yell at her, scream at her. The neighbors could hear him at night, yelling at his wife. Whenever the children would come by, he would yell at them, grumble at them, as always. And, and he would threaten them by saying, when I die... I'm going to dig my way out of that grave and come back and haunt you. Well, as time went by, everybody was scared of him, and he loved that, that they were scared of him. Time went by, 98 years old, he finally died. They had his funeral. After the funeral was over, the wife went out and she began to party. I mean, she's having a party. She's all over town, having the best time of her life, laughing, cutting up, having a good time. One of the ladies came over to her and said, Aren't you scared that he's going to dig his way out of that grave and come back and haunt you? She said, let him dig. I buried him upside down. (laughs) We are not to be grumblers. Sidney Harris said, when I complain... I do it because it's good to get things off my chest. When you complained, I remind you that griping doesn't help anything. Paul is saying that as a believer being contrasted with a non-believer, that we are not to grumble. And then he says, disputing. W. Vines traces that word, and he says that it it denotes primarily an inward reasoning and opinion, then a deliberating questioning, then a disputing doubt. So according to Vines, the word disputing that is used there means that we have an opinion about something, we begin to raise questions, and then we begin to doubt, and we create doubt not only in our minds, but in the minds of others. So Paul says that as a believer... We are not to be grumblers, nor are we to be disputing. Now, you'll notice in verse number 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So the point that Paul is making is that our attitude is supposed to be different, and if our attitude is different, then our actions are different as well. As a believer, he says that we live in a crooked world, but we are to be blameless. The word blameless that is used there means pure. It means sincere. You and I live in a sinful world, a crooked world, but we are to be blameless, sincere, pure. He said we live in a world of spiritual darkness, but we are to be light in that world of spiritual darkness.
Albert Barnes wrote, The image then is that at, as those lighthouses are placed on a dangerous coast to apprise vessels of their peril and to save them from shipwreck, so the light of Christian piety shines on a dark world. Folks, as believers, you and I live in a sinful, dark world. And we are to be lights shining to prevent people from destruction. God's purpose for the Christian is that we might become like Jesus. And that's what he's doing in your life. He is working in your life that you might increasingly become like Jesus. So we see his purpose and then we see the power uh, for the Christian in verse number 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now then, verse number 12 deals with our responsibility. Verse number 13 deals with the enablement. Verse number 12, this is what you are supposed to do. Verse number 13, here is your power. So the power then to work out our salvation does not come from the presence of Paul. It comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who gives us the will... Now, as a believer, folks, we have a new will. I have a friend who was witnessing to a friend who was not a Christian, and, and he was talking to him about becoming a believer and giving his heart to the Lord and so forth. And, and the guy he was witnessing to said, well, you know, I, I'm just not ready to give up everything that I do. I enjoy uh, these things that I'm doing, and I don't want to give it up. And Eddie said to him, said, well, I do those things every time I want to. And he said, you do? And he said, yes. And he said, and you're a Christian? He said, yes. He said, well, then how do you do that? He said, I don't want to do them anymore. He said, folks, that's what God does in your heart. If you are a believer, you have a relationship to Jesus Christ. He changes your water. And if you still want to do those things that are ungodly, that are opposed by God, then if I were you, I would be very concerned about my relationship to the Lord. Because it is the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to will that our waters might be changed and to work. He gives us the power to do what he expects us to do with the focus being on his good pleasure. You see, if you are a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, your water has been changed. That does not mean that you are sinless, but it does mean you want to be. It does not mean that you are perfect, but it does mean that you want to be. God changes our will and works in us as we focus on His good pleasure. Now, there are three tools available to us as we work at our salvation. First of all is Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So we have the scripture. We are to appreciate it as the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. So we appreciate it as his word. We appropriate it to our lives. We all talk about how much we believe the Bible. I remember being at the convention once and Dr. Landrum Level was preaching. He made the statement, you don't believe any more of the Bible than what you practice. I was convicted by that because I've always said that I believe the Bible. 
But then I agree with what he said. You don't really believe any more of the Bible than what you practice. We appreciate it as the Word of God. We appropriate it in our lives. We apply it to our lives. And when we apply it to our lives, we do so with power. When Jesus said to Peter, come, Peter walked on water as he responded to the Word of God. So it is the Scripture that gives us power and then prayer. His power is released in prayer. You know that that uh, in Acts chapter 1, there were 120 believers who gathered in the upper room to pray. In Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 people who were saved at Pentecost. The power of God came when the people prayed. You remember when Simon Peter was imprisoned. And while he was in prison, the church gathered together and they were praying for his release. And God miraculously released him because of the power in prayer. Someone has said, little prayer, little power. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. So we have scripture, we have prayer, and we have suffering. God's power is released in our suffering. The Scripture says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So, we see that we are to work out our salvation. That is our responsibility. And then we uh, receive our power. He gives us the power to do so, which comes to us through Scripture, through prayer, and through suffering. Thirdly, God's promise to the Christian. And God's promise is joy. <laughs> I know that that surprises a lot of Christians that God wants you to be joyful. But that's what the Scripture says. God's promise is joy. There is joy hereafter. Verse number 16. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. We can count on joy in the life to come, and I think that we are in agreement concerning that. Oh, there's coming a day when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Jesus believed that there was joy to come. The Scripture says in Hebrews 12, 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the Bible says that Jesus endured the cross. Because he looked past the cross to the joy that was before him. So he expected the joy to come. We know that there is joy in the hereafter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what awaits the believer? Listen to the description of John in Revelation 21.4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. As John looked forward to heaven that day, he said, Oh, when we get there, there'll be no more death. No more death. Raymond Timmerman died this week, our pastoral care minister, went to be with the Lord. My nephew died this week. You have family members and loved ones who passed away this week, recently. Oh, but folks, there's coming a day when there's no more death. There is no death in heaven. There's life there. He said there's no sorrow. We've lived with sorrow on earth. 
And there are some of you who are sorrowing today, grieving today. But there's no sorrow in heaven. The scripture says that there's no crying. How many tears have you shed because of death, because of sorrow? But if they are not in heaven, there are no tears there. So he says, all up there, there's no tears there. There's no pain because it's been replaced by eternal joy. We know that there's joy hereafter. There's coming a day when we all get to heaven. We are there with the Lord. Everything is perfect. There's no death. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no crying. There's no suffering. For the former things are passed away. There's joy in the hereafter. But he also says there's joy in the here. Look at verse number 17. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Folks, we don't have to wait to go to heaven to rejoice. Yes, there's going to be joy in the hereafter, but there is joy in the here, right now. And so Paul is talking about that joy in verse number 17, the joy of sacrifice. Paul said, I rejoice in being a sacrifice for Jesus. I rejoice in giving my life for you. He says, there is joy in sacrifice and there is joy in service. You know, the happiest people I know are those who serve others. Isn't that right with you? The happiest people I know are not those who are constantly looking at themselves, but are always looking at someone else. The joy of service. God's promise to the Christian, joy in the hereafter, but joy in the here. Let me conclude. There are three reminders to me from this text. First of all, Jesus is our example. He is our example of submission. He is our example of obedience. But He is our example. The Holy Spirit is our power. The Bible says, Greater is He who is within, speaking of the Holy Spirit, greater is He who is within than He who is of the world. So the Scripture says that if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in your life and to give you the power that is needed. So the Holy Spirit then is our power, and joy is the result. As we become like Jesus, we experience His joy. As Jesus is in control of your life, you experience joy in the here and more to come in the hereafter. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus? Oh, preacher, I'm a Baptist. I was born in the choir loft. Well, that's not what I ask you. Do you know Jesus? See, that's what's important. It's not whether or not you're a Baptist or something else. That really doesn't count for much. Do you know Jesus? Because it was Jesus who died for you and for me that we might be forgiven of our sins. Do you know him? It is only in Christ that you'll have joy in life. Our gracious Father, I pray for those today who have never come to know Jesus. I pray that they might. Lord, that they would make a commitment of their lives to Christ who loves us and gave his life for us. Father, I pray for those who are saved, we might understand that we are to be working out our salvation. 
that the Spirit of God is doing a work in our lives, that we might become conformed to His image, more and more like Jesus. Lord, that the result will be joy. I pray, Father, for this invitation time. May you be glorified. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. An opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you're here without Jesus today, will you commit your life to Him? Would you do that? There will be staff members here to pray with you, talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Is God working in your life that you're becoming more like Jesus? That as time goes by, people see more and more of Jesus and less and less of you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir sings, you come, I'll greet you as you do.